All right. Uh, we saw as we started chapter 19, as Paul's on his third missionary journey coming into Ephesus, and and uh, last week we looked at where he had come across these 12 men who had thought they were saved, but really didn't have enough knowledge yet. They heard some preaching or teaching as a result of John the Baptist, either from, either from some of his disciples or whatnot, but they had some confusion. And so we saw them coming to know Christ. And so let's pick it up now where we left off in verse number 8. We're going to read down from uh, verse number 8 down through verse number 20. Again, this is Paul in Ephesus. It says, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure thee by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. There were seven sons of one, Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the men in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. And many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. They counted the price of them and found that 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we certainly love you. We thank you, uh, Lord, for your word. And uh, Lord, we thank you for our church. Lord, I ask your blessing now upon this time. Please control what I say and how I say it. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, may your spirit please work. Lord, teach us your word. Preach it to us. Lord, may we grow closer to you. May you do the reproving, rebuking, convicting, encouraging, all that is needed. And Lord, please use your word to do that this morning. Strengthen us. I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted. Lord, that they have never truly been saved from judgment to come. Lord, I pray that even this morning that conviction would hit, that they would repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. As you can tell, it concludes, our section of verses conclude with such a great statement. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. It just got done talking of all that it was facing, of all the obstacles that were to overcome. And we see that God's word was what prevailed. Again, Paul is here in his third missionary journey. This... This location, the church that arises in Ephesus again, would become a strong, one of the strongest churches that Paul would plant. There is much, I believe, in this message that can help us today. I certainly want you to listen to this. You see, we tend to look at our culture today, and really, we start to almost get a sense of hopelessness as to a change that can come about. We see the wickedness that is taking over, and it's just everywhere. It seems as if wickedness is prevailing. Even in so many churches, there's a fakeness, so many charlatans. We see even in other churches, really just trying to conform to the culture as it changes, seeking to entertain people or others more about power, pride, to build their name, to build their prestige, to say, look at me. If you pay attention to the things I'm bringing up. These are some of the exact same things that were happening in Ephesus. Again, we see a culture far from God and turned over to pleasure and wickedness. 
I think it affects us in America who are trying to serve God even more so because of the direction of our nation. We are a nation that once did strong, that, that did, uh, uh, um, at a time, was so much closer to God and had a godliness and a foundation to it. We can see the evidence that is also clear of a nation turning from God by what we spend our money on. How so much income is spent on things that are simply, of, that are simply pleasure-oriented. We even see the rise in our own nation of things like Eastern religion taking place. As people turn from God, they're embracing things that are really absurd and demonic. Of course, the demonic influence is taking over everywhere. We can see it in so many ways, and our nation is just blind to that taking place. To the point where people don't even know that they're simply male and female. And trying to get into semantics and separating gender from that, causing utter confusion and dismay. It's just a matter of time when you begin to, lo- to leave truth of why you were created, why you were here, and you turn to God, that many of these, these lies and these deceptions come into play and at least a confusion and chaos and division. Perhaps even in your own personal life, even as a Christian, at times you battle a hard heart. Or you battle fakeness. And you realize there's just so many false motivations that are present. Where it doesn't seem God is real. Maybe issues with pride. Or things of this world just always grabbing your heart and your attention. Without ever getting to that place of just realizing, no, it's simply all about God. Within this text, of course, we see the answer for our own life and, of course, our culture. And that is the word of God that prevailed. And when we're going to look at this text, we're going to combine it with what we know Paul did there to see what it actually took and the price that was paid to see this change take place. I mean, that last verse mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. The key is always going to be God's Word. It is. That's going to be the key. It's why it's stressed here every single service. It's why it's stressed above entertainment, above music. Because that's not going to change you. That will affect you emotionally in the moment, and that is it. But if you want genuine change and help for your life, where you see a culture change, you see your life change, the answer is here. Ephesus' culture was affected greatly by what took place during those three years that Paul was there. It wasn't because of Paul. It was because of the Word of God taking hold. As the Bible teaches us, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It changes men. God's Word is truth. It's what we need. The ability and power of God's Word is never what is in question. What is in question is how you choose to receive it. Your response to it. The Bible stresses the importance of receiving the Word of God with meekness. Not from pride. Not from choosing to ignore but from a place of meekness, of realizing, of allowing God's Word to be able to change you. Not approaching it with carelessness. Another one that, because of generations, because of where our country is, and and even those who have grown up in Christian homes, one thing that can lose its effectiveness, where you no longer approach it with the awe and meekness that it deserves, is familiarity. You've always had a Bible in your house. It's always been there. And you lose sight of how precious it actually is. You're in church three times a week. You take for granted what you have in the preaching of the Word of God. But 
but it really is the most amazing book. I mean, really, from the Old and New Testament, those 66 books, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New Testament, all these different authors that God used to pin these words in. Incredible. The amount of prophecy that has been fulfilled to the letter. The lives that have been changed. Within our text today, as it concludes, we see the word of God prevails. And it was growing mightily. It was taking hold. I know the times even here in this church, and even when I was in New Guinea, the times when I begin to see God's word take hold in individuals' lives. Man, would I get excited at that. When it wasn't just culture, when it wasn't just that, when you can see the actual feeding taking place and desiring God to change, wanting God's word, and you see it growing. We see it prevailing in our text over challengers, over charlatans, over culture. I'm going to break our text down into two two primary points. We'll see how far we get through this today. I hope to complete it all. It really needs to be done in one setting, but we'll see. I'm going to look at the obstacles that have prevailed over and the outcome of overcoming those obstacles, what it produced. Now, Paul is in the city of Ephesus. I think we need to understand the place that he is in to see the greatness of what is taking hold here. Ephesus ranked with Corinth of the two most important cities on the road from the east from Rome. As far as the eastern side of the Roman Empire, there were three main cities that Rome dealt with. Antioch, Alexandria, and Ephesus. This is a major location. Do you have that photo available up there? I want to show you where it's located. It was a commercial center. It was a port. It had, it had a, a, a river that flowed through it coming off of the ocean right there. It, you could navigate up through it. They would have to dredge it out, but they certainly did that. It had a major crossroads for travel that took place. So ships could come in. Caravans would come in. Um, and it was it's sitting, of course, right here. All right. Off the Aegean Sea right here. You can see Paul was at Corinth prior. This is where he came over in the second missionary into Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, down to Athens, over to Corinth. And then he had, on his way back, he had stopped briefly in Ephesus and then came down into Antioch, headed up into Jerusalem, and then started back again, getting concentrating quickly to get back into Ephesus, where he's going to spend three years right here in this major town. So you can see how important it was. Rome, by the way, would be sitting. you got Italy. It's not in a photo, but Italy is right here. So Rome would be sitting actually about right, well, a little bit more. Rome sitting about right there. So on the eastern side of their empire, this was one of their major cities with Alexandria down here and Antioch right here. These were very much controlling and major places of the empire. And it's amazing what the Lord is going to do in Ephesus. Ephesus was known for the temple of Diana. I'm not going to spend too much time there because we'll get to that when we're in the next section here because we're going to see a riot that takes place from the events that are happening right now in this. So I'll get more in the temple of the worship of Diana, uh, that ugly, nasty, false god that they created and they worshiped. It was all based on sensuality and, and sex, but again, we'll get more into that next week. Ephesus was known for sorcery and witchcraft. The occult was strong there. Uh, it was everywhere. It was common, including uh, so-called exorcists, just like we have so-called exorcists that exist today. Knowing this, you can understand when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It was a place of the occult. It was in Ephesus that Paul really did confront some of the tremendous power of the demonic world. So let's dive into this and look at the obstacles that the Word of God prevailed over. What it had to deal with. So, let's look at verse 8 and 9 again. It says, And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing 
and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. So the first thing we're going to see that Paul has to deal with here is challengers arise against his preaching, against him teaching the word of God, those who had hardened their heart against it, those who became enemies. It says that Paul taught three months in the synagogue, which, as we're going through the book of Acts, as you probably recognize, that is by far the longest amount of time frame he's been allowed to teach in any one synagogue. So they were accepting it for a time. However, there were those that were choosing not to believe. There were those that were hardening their heart. The word that is used here for a hardened heart always refers to defiance against God in the New Testament. Romans 9, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4. So this group becomes an opposition to the gospel. It becomes an opposition to Paul, to the preaching of the word of God. They are opposing that way. And the truth is, some of the most dangerous are those who have heard the truth over and over, week after week. But they choose to ignore. When they first hear it, the conviction hits. It sets in. The realization that they are dealing with truth. But what they do is they choose to ignore whatever is keeping them from choosing to accept it, knowing they will change. Choosing, I, I don't want to leave my darkness. I like it here. Or whatever it is, whatever happens to have their heart where they make a conscious decision after hearing truth over and over. I'm not letting it go. Many times, those who begin to harden their heart after hearing truth over and over become the most dangerous. They become adversaries of the truth of the way. They become adversaries of the way they chose to forsake or they chose to ignore. And make no mistake about it, I love the wording of it, it is the way. There is a multitude ways to God. There is one. As Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. It, 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 even the wording used here, it, uh, as Paul spake things concerning the kingdom of God in the synagogue. I mean, think of what he's doing. He's not talking about eschatology there as we think of that terminology. He is dealing with what the Jews were expecting in the Messiah with the establishing of a kingdom. And he is coming through using the scriptures, the Old Testament, to say, listen, no, the, the Messiah has come. He had to suffer and he had to die. This is what's going to take place in regards to his kingdom. And even though there were opposition, we see what took place in Ephesus was God's word prevailed. Paul didn't quit. All of a sudden, when difficulties arose and these men rose up, he stayed faithful to God and his word and his responsibility to teach and to preach. He didn't quit. Listen, don't quit when battles hit. When you determine to do right, I, there's going to be adversaries. There are. There are going to be those who try and persuade you. Stay faithful. Many times we never give God's word a chance to prevail. We just don't want the battle. We decide to quit. Listen, you're never going to accomplish anything in life if every time a difficulty comes up, you decide just to go stand by the wayside and let others fight. You'll never accomplish anything in life. When you determine to do right, there will be adversaries. Stay faithful. Stay true. Even if you think at the time, you know, you just can't see the end of it. Listen, God's word will prevail. I mean, I, I can think of different times as a teenager when I started trying to serve God. I remember the first, the, the first levels of difficulty I had besides what took place in my public school, I'm not dealing with that, was my dad. Uh, he was not thrilled at all. I remember times he would pick me up. My parents were divorced. And, he, and again, he's a rock and roll DJ in Cleveland, Ohio. And here I am trying to serve Christ. He was not happy with me at all. He had much rather me out partying and doing everything else. He just couldn't believe that this was what was taking place. And, and, and it seemed every, well, it wasn't, it didn't seem it happened. Every time he picked me up, that would just get into a debate. Wanted me out of that. I remember there was even a short time 
when I think it lasted about three months, if I remember right, was even barred from my church. They thought, oh, yeah, he's just taking it too far. Even, even the pastor, came, my, my pastor came to me. He had found out what happened and uh, that I wasn't going to be allowed to come to church anymore. And I am getting ready to teach. Remember in the public school, they let me teach a Bible class. I'm getting ready to teach the class and my pastor showed up. He showed up. It's right before I teach. And he told me directly, right to my face, he said, you're not going to make it. He goes, we're pulling you out. You're not going to make it. And I said, well, that's encouraging. I appreciate that. But really, I never questioned it. It wasn't about church to me. It never was. And sure enough, after three months or so, you know, that had changed. And I, I was certainly was, a, 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 you know, back in it and, and served. Actually, I never lied. I went to, I went to uh, uh, just another church in town, Marianne's church at the time, during, those, during that three-month time frame. By the way, it would take years later when my dad, I began to have the influence. I was telling, I think, I think James and I were talking yesterday about that. It would take years before I'd have influence in my dad's life towards the cause of Christ. Which that did finally come about. You know what happened? God's word prevailed. God's word prevailed. I remember I had, I had it was in my youth department, and he was really, I mean, and, and, and this guy I was really close to. He's a family member. He, and I saw him getting a hold of it. I mean, he really was. He, too, came up against a lot of obstacles with it. Um, not, not quite the same as me, but, but, but similar. And I remember we were at one of our high school football games, Friday night football game, and I saw him. And I'll still never forget what he said. I was trying to encourage him to stay at it. He said, nope. He said, if this is what they want me to be, this is what I'll be. It's never the answer. Listen, it's about God. Don't forget that. He's the one that's worth it. Don't get so focused on the circumstances that you forget what it's all about. Stay faithful. Listen, hard hearts will be formed. There will be opposition. There will be enemies that come, up, come about, but you stay faithful. Listen, as a church, as we're going forward, we're going to have battles that we're going to face. We stay faithful. That's what we do. Now, the second one is big. The second obstacle that we're going to see that in order for God's word to prevail would be the ability to stay committed. Commitment. Or the obstacle in sense that has to be overcome is self. This, this is key to understanding what took place in Ephesus. I want you to follow this with where I'm going with this point. Look at verse 9 and 10. All right, so Paul departs. He has this, the, the place he is using is just another building that he's using that he's establishing this church at. So he's thrown out of the synagogue, but he finds another location where he can preach and teach. That's what's taking place. This continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So let, let's look at what was taking place here in Ephesus. So Paul has these three months in the synagogue, disputing and persuading. Those are two very interesting words. The first one means reasoning, uh, which we get the same word we have in English of dialogue. It's a back and forth. It's a question and answer type thing that Paul would present. He knew when he was going to those, those religious Jews, they'd have much questions when all of a sudden he's telling them the Messiah has been here. What he would need the ability to do with the Word of God was to answer questions. Do you know how many times people are lost simply because we don't tell them why we believe what we believe? How many times your old children go the way because they, they never understand why we believe what we believe? There's no dialogue. It's just it's just what we do. No, that's, that's not it. That's not why. It's not just what we do. 
If we're doing something, there better be Bible principle behind it. So Paul would use dialogue. He would reason with them. Convincing, persuading. Persuading means to convince by argument. So in other words, when he went into the word of God, it was convincing. It's like, I see it. And it's at that point, by the way, that's when you have the choice to make. Because many times when you see the truth, you know, if I choose to accept that as truth, I would have to change. That's where, that's where, you're saying, well, we don't like that. We're comfortable with where we're at. And then we miss what it's all about. As if that's a bad thing. No, it's a great thing. So this is what's taking place. In the synagogue, they were listening, I mean, three months. I mean, that, that, again, that's the longest yet. It says he spake the word of God with boldness. That's key. He spake the, it's the word of God that he's speaking with boldness. So in other words, when, when he is presenting it, it's with a passion. It's with clarity. And let me just stress this. As Paul preached and taught, he wasn't preaching and teaching simply his, simply his hobby horse. That will never change a culture. That will never change a person. He stayed true to the word of God because it was the word of God that grew mightily. That's what will prevail. It's not getting off on hobby horses. It's not just taking a text and jumping from it. It's staying true to the word of God because that's what needs to grow. That's what does the prevailing. I mean, think, if Paul was in a synagogue, just using some text as a springboard, that would never fly there. Just get out. We're done with you. After the three months, those in opposition, he has to leave. He finds another place to meet. This is a lecture hall. Now, the name, the name of this lecture hall means tyrant. And it's either, it was either just the name of the hall, but most people believe based on, on what was taking place in Ephesus, that was actually the name of the guy who owned it and the primary lecturer in the school. And that it was a, a nickname given to him by his students, the tyrant. So Paul was able to use this hall to get this church established. It's here where we begin to see what I'm talking about right now. And this would take a lot of self-denial and a lot of commitment for this to take place, what happens in Ephesus. We know from this text that he taught in this building for two years. The total time spent in Ephesus is three years. He had three months in the synagogue. We're not sure how long it took him to find it, but he had a total time of three years here. This is coming from chapter 20. We know from chapter 20 he taught morning and night. I want you to think about this. So in this region of the world, especially in Ephesus, the work hours were unique, including when the hall would be used by the school itself and not Paul. The hall would be in use, the lecture hall would be in use by the actual school, not Paul, uh, um, up to about 11 a.m. At 11 a.m., for the most part, all work shut down till 4 o'clock. It was, uh, it was time to sleep. It was hot. And so, the com- not just in the school, throughout the entire region, work would stop at 11 p.m., a break until 4 p.m., and then usually it picked up again to about 7 or 8 p.m. in the evening. That was common each day. Matter of fact, there's one writer talking about this area, an Asian writer even at that, who was talking about Ephesus, and he said this. He said there were more people awake in Ephesus at 1 a.m. than there were at 1 p.m. So Tyrannus would teach in the morning in a school, probably resume a little bit later, around 4 o'clock, and he would teach again. So the time that was available for Paul to use would be 11 to 4 o'clock, and then again after 8 o'clock for a couple of more hours. It is thought that Paul taught every single day. Because he said he taught, go to chapter 20, he said, I did this every day. In the first session, anywhere from 3 to 5 hours. Then again after 8 p.m. For two years straight. 
Think of that commitment that that was taking. Uh, And by the way, in his mornings, Paul was doing his tent making in Ephesus as well. So he would do his tent makings. He would finish that, head to the lecture hall, and teach for three to five hours. And then at four o'clock, they'd have to have it back. We also know he did this at night. So that means after 8 p.m., he went back and taught them some more. 365 days for two years. That's commitment. That's self-denial. That's getting the job done. That's getting into the Word of God. That, that is, by the way, just please follow me here. Look at the day we're in, how things have changed. Paul wasn't holding rock concerts every day. He was teaching and preaching the Word of God. The people were getting established. And the effect of what's getting ready to take place from that amount of what was happening is getting ready to change the entire city. Which is one of the key cities in the Roman Empire. We underestimate really how powerful the Word of God because of how we tend to receive it and it doesn't make the genuine change in our life. We don't see it as a hammer, as a light. As all that the Bible describes it. But it is the answer. What Paul did took a measure of self-denial. It took a measure of commitment. Listen, if God's word is going to prevail, it will take commitment. Not just on Paul. You've got to think of this. Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't teaching and preaching to himself. People sat there during that time. During the heat of the day. Listening to this. Think of the commitment on their part. Just, 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 as, uh, just as important as Paul's was. This is why Paul could say, I shun not to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. He covered it. It was the word of God being taught and preached that accomplishes, that it would prevail. It was Paul committed to it, to giving it day in and day out, day in and day out. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen after two weeks or two months or three months. This is all those hours spent each day, every day. It took years. In order for the word of God to prevail in our lives and even in our community to see a difference, it takes commitment. Too often, sadly, we just want a Christianity to get by with and not actually work at. We don't want it to cost us anything. Paul was committed. The next, what he had to overcome... And let's see time-wise here. This one's a little bit longer. That is the charlatans of what we see take place in 11 through 16. And actually, for this to flow right, I think I'm actually going to stop right here. What we're going to see take place next week and then getting into how it overcame, we're going to see the charlatans take place. Because what's going to happen next is when others see the, also the power that Paul has, There's those that are going to try and mimic, they're going to fake it. They saw the influence that he was gaining. They saw the power and the miracles that he could perform that were special by him. So I need to cover that as well. Because we have multitudes today claiming they have the exact same power when it looks nothing like what Paul did at all. And there were exorcists in that day. Those were those who said they had the power to cast out demons. And so they would go through these rituals and we'll cover with what they did. And that was never what Christ or the apostles did. They did it simply by authority. And as the Bible says here, it was special given unto them to confirm the word of God. And as a result of all this, we're going to see what takes place and what over, how it overcomes. And how through all this, the outcome is twofold. We see Christ is magnified, and we see genuine change take place, which is what we all want. 
Now, let me go back to this and take about five minutes for this. I want you to listen to me right now. When Paul was in the synagogue, trying to persuade, trying to reason with, he started with his countrymen. This, this would always choose to be the base. It was what he did. He would go and he would start there. He knew he'd have an audience, a place to preach because of his background, because of, uh, of, of who he was as a Jewish man, as himself, uh, in a position of leadership before his conversion, a man who knew the Old Testament Scriptures. So he'd be given a place to speak. And what he tried to persuade them was of who Christ was. It has been 2,000 years since these events took place. 2,000 years. Within about... Actually, it was happening right around this time already. Paul was probably not, not quite aware yet, but probably about while wow, he's in Ephesus right now. Might be a year or two after this. There's already changes coming about in the churches from his first missionary journey. And you know what they were leaving? The gospel. Follow me here. So Paul, there too, did the persuading, trying to get the church established. Now here, the Lord allowed Paul to stay for three years. Teaching and preaching uh, this five to seven hours every single day. And a strong church gets established. Strong. That was because of the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. At time in and time out, as the people received it and changes were coming about, this church was getting stronger and stronger and stronger. However, to the northeast, the churches in Galatia, people had already come in and changed what they believed about the gospel. They changed, they got a hold of the most important doctrine that we hold sacred, that of salvation. The false teachers were so effective that Paul said, you know what, I don't even know if any of you are saved. How did this happen? If that happened in the first century... What do you think it looks like 2,000 years later? Now know this. God will never, ever allow truth to go by the wayside. There will always be truth present. Always. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But just like in Ephesus, when those hardened their heart and they chose to reject it, they, they didn't, again, those of you who hear and choose, they usually go on a course to fight against it. They want it gone. We see a lot of that today. They fought against the way. And the truth is there is only one way. That's it. That's it. You see, but that's so narrow-minded today. Listen, if this... How wicked would I have to be for the sake of political correctness to lie to you and tell you, you know what, you're fine with your own way. When in truth you're going to die and face the judgment of Almighty God and end up in eternal in an eternal lake of fire. How horrible would I have to be just because I don't want to create an awkward situation? But listen, this isn't about pride. This isn't about arrogance. This isn't a way that I come up with. But listen to the words of God, the, the one who made you, the one who created you, who created this entire universe. He said these words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's not the independent Baptist church creating that doctrine. That's truth. 
Or this in the Word of God. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He is the way. And there are multitudes of adversaries attacking that. And Ephesus would be strong because of the incredible demonic influence that was in that city. So the Creator Himself says, listen, this is it. Well, why? When you stand before God in judgment, and that will take place, the Bible says, it is appointed men once to die, but after this the judgment. Please understand, you will stand before the Creator God in judgment. He knows everything about you. There's no deceiving Him. There's no tricking. There's no getting by on a lie. There's no deceit. Matter of fact, at judgment day, you're not going to say a word. You'll say nothing. He is just going to open up one of those books that basically have your name on it. And he's going to show you every time you've broken his law. And you've broken his law just like I have. Every single one of us has. All of us. We've broken his law. You've blasphemed the name of God. You've used lies. You've you've committed adultery at least in your heart. You've committed murder at least in your heart. You have idols. You put things you put before God. You've coveted. And you're going to be judged of Him. Keep in mind, He's holy and He's just. That's not changing. We think all of a sudden God's going to change who He is when you stand before Him. That all of a sudden, He's not going to act out of justice. And you're wrong. He is. And 100% of those at that judgment that are found guilty are cast into a lake of fire. Every single person. So God, in order to save us, had to do something that not that satisfied that justice perfectly. And met with his desire to save us because he's not willing that any should perish. It is so true for God so loved the world. He does love you. He, he doesn't desire not one single person to perish in hell. Not one. So what he did was this in order to save you. God himself became a man 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ. He lived on this earth the perfect life. The only one who's ever done it as a man. He's it. He lived that perfect life. Follow me, please. He's the only one who could stand at the judgment day. And the Father could say this. You're innocent. You're innocent. You never broke the law. The law, you fulfilled the law. You're perfect. He is the only one in all of human history that could actually go to the judgment day and be found innocent. From Adam on down, we're all guilty. Every single one of us. So for the first time in human history, you had somebody who fulfilled the law. Now get this. This is where it gets really, really good. You know why he did that? He did that for you. He did that in order to save you. You have heard the phrase many times that Jesus died for you. And he did, but we just don't understand it. He did die for you. But let me explain what happened on that cross. Well, let me back up. Let's let the Bible explain what happened on that cross. Listen to this verse speaking of what happened on the cross. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us. God the Father hath made the Son to be sin for us, speaking when he was on the cross. Who knew no sin, he was perfect. That we, that's us, might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, one of the deceits of Satan is so common, is he gets people to try and establish, as it says in Romans 10, their own righteousness. That'll never work. You see, when he was on the cross, get this, the Bible says he became sin for us. So let me use this as an illustration right now. Follow me. I'll be done here in just a minute. Listen to this. 
What I'm trying to do is just like Paul did, is persuade you concerning the kingdom of God and what it means when Christ died for you. When he was on the cross, the Bible says he became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God. So when I tell you, as the Bible says, that Christ died for you. It's like this. Let's say this is Judgment Day, the book that is open, and your name is up top here. So it's your name up here. And underneath your name is all of your sin and all of your wickedness. Over here, let's say up here is the name the Lord Jesus Christ. Now underneath his name, of course, is no sin. He lived the perfect life. So the only thing that's underneath his name is his righteousness. So here is your name and your sin. Here is Christ's name and his righteousness. When I say that Christ died for you, what I mean is this. This is what the Bible teaches. Is that you can take your name, which is over here, and remove it. And place it over here. Remove Christ's name and place it over here. Think about that. Let's say that happens. If Christ's name is over here, what's underneath it? Your sin. And you know what happened to him because of your sin? He was judged in your place to satisfy justice. He suffered in your place. This is very important. Because he's God, hell didn't hold him. He defeated death and rose again the third day. So let's say now your name's over here. What's underneath your name? No sin. Righteousness. This is what we call justification. This is how God is able to save you. This is why it's only one way. There has only been one who has ever satisfied the justice of Almighty God in judgment. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. You will not go to heaven any other way. It is through Him and Him alone. It's not in baptism. It's not in church. It's not in your good works. It is in Christ alone. You say, well, how do I switch those names? Really good question. How do we switch the names? Because even the Lord Jesus Christ said this himself, you there be that find it. The Bible gives two key words. Really, it's key from Genesis to Revelation, repentance and faith. It's when you realize where you're heading, where your sin is, the judgment that is upon you because of sin, the condemnation that is upon you because of your sin. And yet you see what Jesus Christ did for you. You turn from whatever else you've been trusting. You don't mix this with anything. You don't add Christ on anything else. It is Christ alone. You see the direction you're seeing. You turn from all, what, what you've been trusted in and, and, and you realize it's all about him and you place your faith in Christ. Let me let the Bible explain it perfectly with a man who put his faith in Christ and was saved instantly. When Jesus was dying on the cross, if you remember the story, two men died with him. Remember that? Two thieves on each side. One went to hell and one went to heaven. Both asked, both asked to be saved, didn't they? Christ ignored one, and he saved the other. So what happened? So all three men are dying on the cross, and this thief over here speaks up, and he says, If thou be the Christ, get us down from here. The only thing that man wanted to save from is a circumstance. You know how many people come to God just about a circumstance? And that's it? That's all he wanted to save from was a circumstance. The Bible doesn't record the Lord saying one word to that man. Nothing. The other man speaks up, though. Listen to what he says. He tells that other thief, you need to be quiet. We deserve to be here. He says this, this man hath done nothing wrong. And this is all he does. It's amazing. This is all he does. Lord, he speaks to Christ now. Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. The Lord looks at him and says, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What did he do? Did he run down and get baptized? Nope. Did he join a church? Nope. He simply placed his faith in the one who could save him. And get this, and nothing else. Think what he said. He's dying. He never asked to come down from the cross. Know what he was afraid of? Judgment to come. I'm a wicked man and I am dying. 
I'm in a lot of trouble. He recognized the one next to him was perfect. And what he did was place his faith in him. If you will repent and place your faith in Christ, he will save you. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Now, this last 10, 10, 12 minutes, I went over what is the gospel of what Christ did to save you. There is nothing, there is no more important truth than what you just heard. It deals with eternity. Say, Pastor, please, I heard you. I want you to pray for me. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. I'm not sure. I heard you just now. Please, I want you to pray for me. If that's you, would you just raise your hand where I could see it? Just put your hand up where I can see it. You can put it back down. I won't call you out. Anybody here like that? I see some small children. If you did raise your hand, I missed it. I need you to do that again for me. Anybody here like to say, Pastor, please. I think I need that. I think I need what you're talking about. That I need to place my faith in Christ. Anybody? I'll give it just, just a few seconds more if you're here. Just put your hand up where I can see it. You can put it back down. Again, if you did it, I missed it. I would need you to do it again for me. All right, Christian. As we went through our text today, we are seeing such a clear example of the power of the Word of God to work, to prevail. How it can overcome those obstacles in your life, even in your own heart. The enemies that can come against you. To stay faithful and not to quit. To stay focused on Him. Don't forget what it's about. And of course, it does take commitment. I mean, anything that's worth anything takes a measure of commitment. This is what it's all about. So often we're so afraid of commitment. Yet it's why we're here. If you're to give your strength to something, why not this? If the Lord worked on your heart, you need to come and pray. You come and pray.